1: Hello and welcome to Your book. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and book inspector, and this week I've been mostly thinking about Meghan Markle's old Instagram account. Before she got married and acquired a lot of ancient furniture, Meghan used to make shelves out of books. Meghan's efforts looked chic and stylish, and I tried to make a bookshelf out of books, and it looked like there had been a fight in a library. If you make bookcases and you'd like to sponsor us, we're desperate to hear from you. My brand new book, The Sisterhood A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, is published by Headline and it's available online and from bookshops across the UK. Buying the book is the best way for you to support the podcast. Now, to this week's guest. I am so excited to share this with you. This writer is one of my all time favourites, and I still can't quite believe that we really met Barbara Trapido is the author of seven novels, and I fell in love with her when I read her first, Brother of the More Famous Jack, the story of 18-year-old Catherine and how she falls in and out of love with every member of the Goldman family and their brand of bucolic bohemia by way of Bloomsbury. However, while Trepito's characters may get their hearts broken regularly and reliably, her novels always make my heart sing. We visited Barbara at her home in Oxford by the river and we talked about sex, academia, the highs and lows of publishing, her dog cares and Nancy Mitford. You might hear from cares towards the end of the episode. When I mentioned Barbara on Twitter, there was a glorious burst of excitement and enthusiasm. Those who love her fiercely tend to be the most dedicated readers and passionate writers. She does not attract casual fans. If you're new to her work, this might mark the beginning of an obsession. Book I've picked up is The Queen of the Tambourine by Jane Gardham and this is I'm just going to describe it. It's a really beautiful hardback edition. It's his first edition. It's got lovely end papers and a um I should know what that picture is, and I don't. It's a very it famous like Clarona Francesca. And I think you know they have that extraordinary
2: stillness, and I think it's uh, Christ's resurrection, where the, the guards are sleeping and he has got one foot on the tomb and you just wait for the next mm. moment because the painting has this incredible sort of um moment that's it's sort of frozen
1: sense of anticipation yeah you say? but
2: it's, it's obviously a pierre della francesca i think it's
1: that painting but i'm not sure tell me about reading jane Garden. oh i've just Outside opened it down. as well and the uh, you've got the yes. the dust jacket is reversed is that deliberate or no it, i don't know ones. how that
2: happened Gosh, there she is
1: looking so young. She's
2: about ten years older than me. She must be nearly ninety. You know, I discovered her at first as a children's writer when my daughter read her. And she she writes beautifully. And she's funny and she takes on quite brave subjects. And she said to me once, no matter what I write, the reviewers always start with some phrase like, these gentle tales. (laughs) And I think at a certain point people decided that her book should be in the adult fiction section because I notice now that Bill's Water and A Long Way From Verona and so on, the early books she wrote as children's books are now in the adult section. So she wrote this and she wrote a book called Foe, which was a sort of female version of Robinson Crusoe and i lots and lots of really good short stories, uh, which is a thing I can't do at all, so I admire it. Um, in fact, I started writing my first novel because I was chattering out some anecdote to a very um, sort of highly motivated friend of mine who pulled down her own walls, had a full-time university job, five children, grew her own vegetables. And she said, ''Do you know get gets my nerves about you?'' You're so lazy, you <laughs> dissipate all your talent chattering <laughs> out stories over the kitchen table I want you to start writing it down, write a story for the in <laughs> short story competition. This must have been about late 60s. So I was a bit stung by this because I was actually a full-time school teacher and I thought that was quite hard work. But uh, I started writing and I dreamed up the characters in my first novel. And uh, I very quickly thought... This isn't a short story. I just want to sleuth around in these people's lives uh, forever, you know. It's like a curious kind of combination of detective work and psychology, working out why, what motivates people, what makes them get together and so on. So I put it by in a box. But um, anyway, Jane Gardham and her short stories are fantastic. And then she wrote first... Old filth, and that became a trilogy uh, about the the old retired QC who had started out as one of those Raj children mm. who got shunted out to England. And uh, I just think she gets better and better. I feel and as though I like to that... remember this one. It was um, a woman, I think, who worked in an old people's home. Am I right? There's so many. I'm sort of mixing them up. I know Mary Wesley once said she couldn't remember characters at all. That in events, you know, people would sort of ask her a question that she was that <laughs> person.
1: <laughs> I did I spotted some Mary Wesley on the shelf, let me
2: You know, she was really great to me, Mary Wesley. How did and she
1: you
2: know her? Yes. And uh, and she used to push my stuff like mad and there was a period when she was so popular, she was very shy and, and hated speaking in public. There was one man, lovely chap who um was the only person she'd agreed to have interview her and uh, it was very hard on a platform to answer any question without saying either just yes or no she was very beautiful very small very shy but hilariously funny much funnier in real life than in her books because she had this image of herself as uh, quite a naughty girl in the war you know Mm. having affairs all right and of course upper-class women with nothing much to do, nannies to look after their children, and and so lots of shopping in Harvey Nicks and having affairs, and almost no education at all. She said the people who educated her were, they were absolutely astonished by my ignorance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she was clever. I think she worked at Bexley, um, you know, decoding stuff. Oh, really? Yes, but she was great. She used to stand up in, you know, platforms of five hundred people, saying, "Ah, oh, my favourite writers are Barbara Troppier and Isabel Allende," and she used to just push the two of us all over the place. So she was lovely to me, and I really liked her. And um, she came to stay a couple of times. She liked dogs, which was a bond. 'Cause I've got a little hairy a doggy there.
1: Ah, oh, we just um met him, I think. It was very um very sleepy, very peaceful. One of the funny things she used to she used to have the most wonderful anecdotes.
2: Well, I, but she she um she, she was married to Lord somebody or other and uh and she left him, I remember her saying. Of course, all the aunts, all the aunts took the trouble to uh, write to me and demand the return of the family lace. <laughs> <laughs> and she'd had, uh, she'd had um, children during the war, um, those children that got dispatched with labels around their necks from the city of London to go and, uh, you know, be billeted in the country and be safe, and little kids from the east end of London who hadn't seen country life at all. And I'm sure they had a marvellous time with her. She used to say they all got into her bed and she read them stories. And, and she'd say, now, I don't throw stones at the chickens because I like the eggs. And they'd say,
1: what's chickens got to do with eggs, miss?
2: And then you know she'd explain how, how the facts of life to them.
1: Oh, this is probably um, unfair to her, but now I'm always going to imagine her a little bit as um, Andrew Langsbury in Bedknobs and Broomsticks with a sidecar full of children. She said there was one little boy she had um, who she absolutely loved, but he kept being
2: sent back because nobody wanted him because he stole stuff. She's, you know, the, the families that took him in then sort of said, we don't want him, he's sort of stealing stuff. She said to him, no, Billy. You see, people don't want you because they say you steal. And he said, well, me dad's a burglar, miss. <laughs> so she said, I said to him, but Billy, we don't steal in the country. <laughs> and after that, it was fine.
1: He thrived. A little bit on the subject of Mary Wesley, I guess. If it's all right, I would love to ask you about um, sex in your books and writing of it because it's always struck me how kind of lively and organic and genuine it seems, and you also you write I think very, very sexy characters everyone I talk to he loves um all of your books, but I think especially brother of the more famous jack, the sort of the when we you know' when we're talking about it with friends like, there is not one character in that book that I would not like to have sex with <laughs> very fanciable family do you? Do you enjoy writing it? Is it scary? Did it feel kind of more or less daunting when no. you started writing than um, it does now?
2: No, and and I, I, I've been told that on the whole, uh, women just sort of skip any sort of heavy breathing passages in novels. And I suppose writing sex, but writing in general, you know, I just shove anything down on the page and I think... Doesn't matter if it's kitsch, Doesn't nobody's reading it except you and maybe God if he is there, <laughs> but I'm not sure. And uh, and so uh, you know, I, I I write it initially, and if I think it's in any way schmaltzy or embarrassing, cringy, um, I think doesn't matter because you're going to throw it all away anyway. You know, you're going to sort of read this and read it and redo it and and. In general, I think writing is a lot about just making things more and more economical and dense. Then you? after a while, you think actually all I need is the image of him picking that one of his chest hairs from the <laughs> space between her breasts, and you don't need all the rest of the stuff. You know, what you don't want is a whole lot of like humping and heavy breathing, and 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 also you don't want to be pious about sex. I, I have noticed. A lot of blokes are quite sentimental, and I hate making gender stereotypes, but almost as though it was a sort of substitute for religion sometimes. Mm. Or else I think very practically, I think, OK, now she's getting her clothes back on, but uh, does she douche or wear <laughs> her neckers or how come she's just picking up her briefcase? And or, you, know, you think about the choreography of that scene in the same way as any other. But actually, I don't think there is a lot of sex in the books. You know, Jane Austen's sex is sexy because the prose is so energetic. So when Elizabeth and Darcy have that interchange when they're dancing about uh, dancing and every savage can dance and so on, and, and uh, you know, it sort of explodes with sexual implication. But you and and when I read my first novel again now. As I've just been doing this morning because are you allowed to say boyfriend when you're 78? I don't know. But the man I was in love with when I was 18 came back into my life about five years ago. He, he wants <laughs> to reread all my novels aloud with me and we started reading Brother of the More Famous Jack this morning. And um, they talk about, say, Jacob Golden's favourite subject is sex but they, they don't actually... Do it? Do they? Right at the end of the book, Jonathan and she mm. after, and the turn on is him doing falsetto singing through the <laughs> streets of Melbourne. <laughs> yes, I, I, what I was going to say, I remember, is just rereading it as I was this morning, and it struck me before, you know, because you discover things about yourself when you reread your text, don't you? And I thought, uh, there's so much about feet in this novel, um, oh yes, and. Uh, anyone reading it now will pick up immediately that Jonathan Goldman is actually the sexy one in the book Mm. because he comes into the kitchen feet first. She hears him pull off the Wellingtons and he walks into the kitchen and he's been going sockless in wellies, as it says. And there's a way in which she finds his feet a kind of sexual threat when she's a teenager. It only struck me afterwards that Jonathan is always described feet first. And at the end of the book, she knits him those beautiful, prodigious scallop-top socks to go fishing in that he says should be in the Tate Gallery rather than on (laughs) his feet. Um, He has, um, you know, nasty sneakers. and (laughs) and, and, uh, And it only occurred to me years later that in Jane Austen where the women are very much indoor people and Elizabeth breaks the code by walking in the mud Mm. to to rescue her sister. They go for walks inside the room. Miss Bingley says, would you take a turn about the room? And uh, the men are going in and out through the doorway. And again, Mr Knightley, you think, that's him, or that's he, as you should say, I suppose. When she's closeted at home with her old dad and... Uh, he comes in, you know. The men, the proper men, come in, knocking mud off their boots, and and uh, I thought, well, that Jack book is sort of sexy, and but it's all on the whole done through. It's uh, the feet are the analogy for, you know, sexual threat, sexual desire, and uh, there's pretty well no actual humping in it. Is there? And uh, Jonathan Gorman, I think, was a sort of wish fulfillment. Man, You know, he, he's having dominant sexual fantasies while he's ironing her viola shirts. And, that's what, you know, he mm. sort of does the cooking. And I think a lot of young women who read that book fancied him, which is not surprising because oh, yes. they all a bit sort of wish fulfillment, aren't they? You can tell that they're made up people.
1: But I think they're
2: slightly too good to be real people.
1: That surely has to be your kind of your writer's prerogative and also yeah. the the fun of it. Yes. Who, who do you fancy in other so books? So people
2: were really cross when I brought him back in another book when I thought this is a story in which a girl mm. dies because a man philanders and I thought I know who'd philander. Yes. Jonathan Goldman and it was such a treat to bring him back and hear what his adult voice sounded like. Some readers were really cross because I think they thought Jonathan wouldn't do that to mm. them. He'd be... <laughs>
1: I'm to them. To it? No, Because I, I remember and that lovely and I don't think I realised initially and then that sort of, you know, meeting, you know, it's like seeing a friend again. And you do kind of I suppose perhaps it's a maybe again, I don't I really don't want to tell you what your books are about, but a lack of sentimentality about it. You know that it's not a sort of a crushing world no. ending. It's it's an inconvenience, but it's about the humanity of people and the. People being fallible. and Yes, and and
2: it's fun, and you don't want to be pious about it.
1: Who in books do you... Who have you read where you think, oh, I fancy them? Oh, gosh.
2: When I was a child, well, not a very young child, I suppose 12-ish, I developed an absolute passion for Lorna Hill's ballet books. Ah. And they were so special, and I don't understand why they... Are not that widely known because, as far as I'm concerned, better than ballet shoes, and they're so well written. And she was a North Country woman who, whose daughter went to the Saddlers Wells Ballet School. And the first book is dedicated to Ninette de Valois, who read the proofs, and they're funny and they're great. So they're partly about um, you know country life and horse riding around Northumberland, and it made me very romantic about the North Country. So that. When we actually came to England, my husband got a job at Durham University. I couldn't believe it because I knew all these places from reading her books. And her heroine, Veronica, who is a little impoverished orphan London girl who has to go and stay with her rich Philistine relations in the North Country. And on the train, she meets a young man, Sebastian, who she ends up marrying. What's gratifying about them is that, you know, when you're little... You sort of you know you're going to be kind of famous and and, and you don't sort of understand that you're going to be quite ordinary. Like, <laughs> you know, but, and uh, of course, both Veronica and Sebastian you know he becomes a world famous pianist and concert pianist conductor, and she is a prime ballerina. And, and uh, but he is so witty and clever and funny on this train journey, and it's only when they get to their destination she realizes that. He is actually the lord of the manor whose father has been impoverished. So they're living in the, in the gatekeeper's cottage and <laughs> the Philistine family are now in the grand house. But that Sebastian is very sexy. And she also had another boy called Guy who's a country vet and sensible and strong and climbs mountains and he rescues little Delicate Jane, ah. another dancer. And once we were sitting around the lunch table... And my sister, my big sister, said to me, "You only read those books because you're in love with Guy." <laughs> and I remember blushing, 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 as I did terribly in those days, and saying, "No, I'm not, no, I'm not." <laughs> but uh, I think Guy and Sebastian were certainly my first uh, hunky heroes. I once got asked to um, write about Wuthering Heights, so I reread it, you know, as a middle-aged woman, and. I realised with astonishment that when I read that as a teenager, I thought Heathcliff was a rather sexy, desirable man. And you read it now and you realise that he's a dangerous psychopath. Mm.
1: I think it's but, so funny, the stories that we tell girls and women about what what is romantic and what is sexy and all that sort of very... Sort of the machismo and this idea of kind yes. of withholding when and you quite really a deal with someone, it's masochistic as mm, well. Absolutely, and it's how we sort of we give that to you know it's like a prepackaged fetish. And then, gosh, the um, I think of all those teen relationships, and you know me and the people I know going out with these terrible <laughs> monosyllabic teenage boys. Like, oh, he's really mysterious and sexy. Like, no, <laughs> he's very dull actually. Do you
2: find that the men you find is sexually attractive in books now are usually? Ones that are funny and um, often fallible and a bit self deprecating. And, and I just read a book by someone called Keith Gessin, and I heard a snatch of it read on the radio. And it's about an American graduate student from a Russian immigrant family, but grown up entirely in America. And he goes, to Moscow to look after an ancient 90 year old grandmother who's dying. And it's a wonderful picture of life in Putin's Russia. But he is this graduate student who somehow never gets his stuff published and never gets the fellowships that all the boring, more crawly <laughs> graduate students get. And uh, I think, yes, that's <laughs> you.
1: <laughs> yes. So we're going to return Mary Wesley and see what else. Um... She wrote really
2: good, you know, she told herself stories all her life, Mary Wesley. Uh, She told me that, you know, all the sort of posh boys she got sort of hooked up with when she was young, though hooked up means something different from the way I use it, I'm assured by my children, but uh, she she said that one of these young men said to her, you're much too old to be telling yourself stories, and she thought... I, she said I met him again, and I thought, oh, well, now I'm eighty, and I'm still telling myself stories. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the magic of her books, really. I think that they were the sort of stories that you tell yourself as you're walking home from the bus stop. And,
1: do you think and there must be that you must? You can only ultimately really do it for for yourself, and if anyone else is interested, that's that. a bonus. Yes.
2: I think everybody's different and some hugely successful writers, no doubt, think, now, this is who I'm writing for, this is my target audience, this is what will get me big sales. But I find the only thing that works is to entertain yourself. Mm. And, and you, you sort of vaguely now and again think, well, if this is entertaining me, perhaps it will entertain a few
1: other people as well. When you sat down and you started to write, brother of the more famous Jack and started trying to write a short story and then realised there's so much more to this. Was it, did you do it because you you wanted to know how that story ended? A novel th- that will be
2: published? I'm too dozy to think about how things end. And I remember being a bit piqued when John Bailey said some writers are wizards and some are muddlers and my wife is a wizard and she plots all her novels. Actually The first person who really excited me, I think, when I was about 16, was, um, as an adult, you know, of adult writing, was Iris Murdoch. Ah. My parents got books from a a sort of a book club and that first edition of of Under the Net arrived in our house and I thought it was astonishing. I thought, I love these people. Uh, I think it's what made me want to go to London, was, was I wanted to meet those people who seem to just lay their heads anywhere and uh, hang out all night with philosophers
1: and sleep under bridges. And, um, it sounds like a really expansive yes. experience, a sense of something dazzling somewhere else.
2: Yes, but on the whole, I think, um, I mean, I mentioned the sexiest men were in these... East- Children's books that were, <laughs> that were
1: sort of like all kinds uh, of, <laughs> they were for sort of like, oh, you know,
2: twelve year olds, I suppose. But Which
1: I think that that's um, an age where you've got your eye out, haven't you? But good children's
2: books are just the best books ever. I still read children's books a lot. And and I had foreign parents who so you knew nothing about English children's books. So I had a memory, my sister and me, of being read Strövel Peter in German. Oh god. Terrifying, terrifying stories. Isn't it? My sister, who was born with a malformed right arm but was a big thumb sucker, my parents, for some reason, rather insensitively, used to read her that story about uh, the the boy who sucked his thumb until the (laughs) dreaded scissors man came along, snip, snap, and you saw the bleeding stumps. I thought, why are they reading the, <laughs> to the child who's only got one hand? <laughs> even sort of, when you were a child,
1: you thought, that's not ideal. I
2: used to get the one about the boy who refused to eat his soup and got thinner and thinner until he died. I only liked the last picture of the chamber pot under the bed and the medicine bottle. And He was like a thread because I was a non-eater. Ah. And I used to get that
1: story. So you can still
2: ich esse picture that illustration. Mine, meine <laughs> nicht. He would say day after day, I won't eat my soup. (laughs) (laughs) Were your parents big readers? And then uh, one of my dad's colleagues, he was in the maths department, handed on all his children's books to us and we got all the A.M. A.M.M. books, which were marvellous, and Alice in Wonderland and Huckleberry Finn, which were a bit sort of old for us. And then... We had a, a little Sephardic Dutch granny who survived the war in, in The Hague who spoke no English and we'd never met her. She used to go into her local bookshop and say, I need some books for my little English-speaking grandchildren. And because of her, we got all the Flower Fairies and the Beatrix Potter books and a wonderful little book called Paris the Mouse, translated from Spanish. And just yesterday on the radio, I heard on a quiz show, David Mitchell, one of the questions was, it's that bluffing program where people assert fact uh, that in Mexico, they don't have a tooth fairy, they have a tooth mouse. And I thought, yeah, that's true, because it comes from Spain, because the tooth mouse in oh. Perry's the Mouse was the Spanish mouse who collected teeth from rich and poor alike. So those were... Absolutely, the books that sort of live inside your head. And then going to university, I just loved everything, but especially Shakespeare comedy and and Jane Austen, of course, of course, and George Eliot, because she's such an anthropologist. And only years later, I discovered that she, her dad, you know, who couldn't afford her to send her to the sort of super top-notch private school where she would have learnt Latin and Greek, sent her to a school where she learnt German, all the original sociology, anthropology was being written in Germany at that time and oh. she read it in German. I
1: think so. so that's why that's what shaped her, her yeah, writing. Yeah. But I've... by the two books that just burned their
2: way into my brain were uh, Henry James's Portrait of a Lady. I just thought I was Isabel Archer for about two years. And, and I loved uh, To right. the Lighthouse. I still uh, have that... In the You're, back of my mind all the time. Oh, yeah. oh, in
1: your mind. I thought you might still have it on your oh, shelf. I've got it somewhere it's on the somewhere. shelf in the model. Oh, but Portrait of a Lady. I read that when I was a student, and that is something that has never, ever left me. I think there's masses of sex in that, too. So I'm not, I sound obsessed. I've got it on the brain. Um, I've noticed you have a lot of books about. Anthropology. Do you
2: use those for research my and reference? My son is an anthropologist, having started out in fine oh, art. Oh, I see a and, book about a witchcraft That's here. a very ancient book that was yeah. on my husband's shelf, but some of his books Joe kept. Um, I mean,
1: this has got the most extraordinary and amazing cover. <laughs> yes. Lucy Mare. I remember witchcraft. meeting
2: Lucy Mare. She was one of those... Yeah, you know, lots of the anthropologists were women, sort of formidable women. And there there was one that I wish I had met, Mary Douglas, who who's written uh, books about the anthropology
1: of the Bible, which is of
2: oh. course the most fantastic rich subject.
1: So they're just amazing titles, A Gift and Poison. That's a great name. Yes. What is that? Yes. I
2: um, I don't know if I've I read it, but you know, there's a way in which um, people compete by giving gifts. To God. I don't want to start producing cod anthropology, but you know, notions of potlatch where tribal people will throw gifts at each other. Ah. And in a sense, it asserts your dominance, I suppose, in that uh, you have to get even, you know. in a, In a way, gift giving can be. Quite because it places people in your debt. Ever since, I've had to take care about giving gifts because it can be a form of one-upmanship and you need to think, is this genuinely a gift I'm mm. giving out of affection or am I wanting to say, look at me, I've got such good taste and isn't my present more generous than Love versus man's? status.
1: Do you ever give books <laughs> yes. as gifts?
2: Well, this give last Christmas, I, I read an article in The Observer uh, and it was about a woman who's in fact a lawyer who'd worked in Palestine... And eventually, I think she practically had a nervous collapse as a result of the awfulness of Dor. I think her origins are Middle Eastern, and, and she wrote a Palestinian cookbook, and it was so beautiful, and the the food was so lovely, and and um, so it was in part a cookbook, in part telling the story of Palestinians' lives and how they are. And so I bought six copies of this book and gave that. That was sort of my Christmas present to people that year. It's a lovely book. I can't remember the author's name. Bloomsbury published it. Hardback with lovely, jewelry cover.
1: That, the story sounds really familiar, but we'll, we will look it up, and we'll find it out, and it will be in the show notes. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Maron from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues We'll be back with Barbara shortly, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so brilliant and so valuable that the pages might as well be printed on £50 notes. This week, my steal is The Past by Tessa Hadley. It's the story of sisters Alice, Harriet and Fran and their brother Roland and the tensions that must be juggled when they return to their childhood home for one last grown-up family holiday. Hadley's writing is gentle but masterful. She's so subtle and nuanced in the way she writes about how families can control each other, how they're bonded by unspoken intimacies, and how they succeed and fail to show love and comprehension to each other in the way they communicate. This is a strange and lovely book. It's like a faded photograph that evokes a memory so vivid it's almost painful. That's The Past by Tessa Hadley, published by Vintage and out now. Now, back to Barbara. Barbara.
2: Now, that book I got many years ago, because Deborah Mogger
1: ah. and then many years
2: later it turned into the Marigold Hotel. You see, it's a book about, so is
1: that, is that a first about edition? some
2: oldies, and I suppose it must be. Uh, I don't know, I just give books away all the time, but... It's, it's, I suddenly connected. I thought I remember reading that book. It was about the oldies Home in oh, India. Oh, so did you see the similar and think? Oh, know that story isn't that? Wouldn't that be fantastic? If someone said we're filming your book, come to India with Maggie Smith and Celia Imrie and all of that. What that fun sweet. that would be! She was. Uh,
1: we just interviewed
2: her actually. Celia
1: Imrie, um, uh, Deborah Maggart. Deborah Maggart.
2: She's so umphy. She's just
1: umphy as a girl. Yes.
2: Word. Yes, I, I really admire that because I'm so dozy and undirected.
1: Well, I, I don't find you dozy at uh, all. <laughs> no,
2: I think I am. And the, I met her first when she was with that lovely cartoonist who died, Mel Kane. Oh yes, and we were somewhere. Some mayor had asked this people from this literary festival to a dinner, and the dinner was rather dull. And there was some rather tiresome professional entertainer who was going round the table picking on people to join in and sing songs with him. And, you know, I'm the sort of person I'll hide my head and think, (laughs) please don't ask me, please don't ask me. Uh, Please, Lord, make me invisible. And uh, he he picked on Deborah Mogger, who just fell into the spirit of it. And she got up with him and she sang songs from Oklahoma and put on a silly hat and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I just thought, you are a great girl.
1: <laughs> oh, do you think she was taking him for the team? Do you think she thought, oh, i leave, leave us all alone if I go in? Maybe, maybe, yes. I don't know. Picture her having a, a good voice and being quite changeful. Um, I've picked up um, Bello, but I, that's one of my all-time favourites.
2: the too. Cardo. That must, a friend gave it to me when I was about 16, 17. <gasps> that's the perfect probably when age. It just to came meet out, Sally
1: J. I think.
2: And I think this book was probably slightly in the back of my mind when I wrote Jack. You know, all sort of unconscious. Mm. But when you think afterwards, when was it first published? Nineteen fifty-eight. Well, I it, I was in the sixth form in nineteen fifty-eight, and my friend Sue Stern gave it to me. And I just thought, OK, like, like with uh, Iris Murdoch's uh, Under the Knit, I thought, I want to be that girl in Paris. Because mm, and, and...
1: there's something, isn't there, I think, about books. Because I think so often we're given books as things that are sort of yes. edifying or educational. And um, that's a book that I think, when, if you read it when you're a teenager, you feel as though it has been written especially yes. for you. And
2: you see, I bought it in the Oxfam shop for £2.99. I've recently just, I I tend to buy things again that I Mm. loved before, like all the Beacon readers that I had in junior school. I've started buying them whenever I can. Published in Glasgow in 1940 and they are so good.
1: So you're very much a, a collector. Where do you buy your books? It's wherever no, you find I them. I chuck things
2: oh, out just as readily as <laughs> I, And I scribble in books and I read them in the bath. And, oh,
1: and I love her I bath. write
2: shopping lists in the back.
1: We just, um, I just read, um, I'm a big, big fan of Nina Stibbe. I read her new book. She's lovely, isn't she? Um she's fantastic I that... read the most recent one. Oh, um I will send it to you. But yeah, that went in the bath and then producer mm. Dale was reading it and it got caught in a rainstorm so it's now <laughs> quite but, <laughs> I, I mean
2: enormous, books are for I've never sort of
1: they are they are for reading not for Yes. <laughs> yes, not, exactly. not referential objects. In fact,
2: this uh book that I'm Very slowly writing and I've put by and must pick up again. I just started writing it uh, in the back of, you know, I just sort of groped on the floor and the first book I picked up alongside the bed was José Saramago. And so I started writing my novel on the back page and then using up the blank pages and then writing in the margins from the back. So if I can find that book again, which must be somewhere in the house... I could take up that novel.
1: Oh, gosh. there just written crossways on Sarah Margo. (laughs) I know it's a delicate subject, but I think I'm not the only person who's really... You know, who'd absolutely love to read more of you. And I know, you know, writing sort of takes time, but whether... I must get back to it. I'd love to, you know... I'm quite... I
2: don't have the energy I used to have. And don't you find that writing is... Um, it's it's hard work, but it's also a kind of playing, writing fiction. Mm. And what you rediscover when you start doing it as a grown-up is you think, this is bringing back the joy I had when I was a small child, uh, you know, it, telling stories as you were walking back from a bus stop and writing little books as I used to all the time with little pictures and... You have to be feeling playful. And it does take and also you need a lot of energy. I mean, I can forgive a book anything so long as I've got energy. Mm. Some books are so sort of ponderous and dead, and that's what you don't want. And uh when I um I I was writing a novel it turned out to be the travelling horn player, and uh Penguin had a big change. I was with Hamish Hamilton. And I think they'd had a disaster in America. And uh, so they did all sorts of economies and restructuring and whatnot. And, and Hamish Hamilton more or less disappeared. And uh, the, the whole sort of editing stuff changed. And from having been the most congenial place, I found myself working with a new editor-in-chief who um, didn't understand that, you know, writers are just sort of... I mean, it's a bit of an aberrant thing, writing fiction, isn't it? Sort of hanging around and talking to pretend people. And, and, and you know, um, most sensitive editors understand that you'll do it when you do it and, mm. and it's no use trying to be all short, back and sides with you. And this woman would phone me up all the time. How is the novel coming along? And you'd submit in December and so on. And, you know, I just write like... Um, sort of like making mud pies, just staring into the dock and waiting for, you know, I dream up the characters and I think, why am I writing about these people? Why are they all wearing green? Or why do their names begin with J? Or why are they always eating? You know, sort of questions that you don't understand when you start. And so I was sort of mucking around and, and I was thinking, I don't know why I'm writing about these people. I I haven't, the, you know all the sort of circles haven't got to oh. intersect and she kept making me panic and I started not answering a phone or fibbing about how <laughs> I was getting up <laughs> and did then I seemed... went and I ran an Arvon course and one of the things I asked people to do was I said uh, imagine being seven and uh, just write something about that and because I always did the exercises as well just to see how long they took or how hard they were and I started writing about being seven, I thought a vivid recall about the classroom and portraits of King George the Six on the Wall and the Ferocious Teacher and and it all recall. And when I got back I thought, Hey, this is fun. And I just started writing this whole kaleidoscope of my real life stories. And unlike all the other stuff I'd written, I thought, Well, you're writing about real life people, so you're only allowed to tell real life true stories, you've got makeup stuff.
1: And I thought, hey, this
2: is fun and it's so easy because I know all these stories, you know, just neighbour stories. And I, I'd never wanted to write autobiographically because I thought people usually end up justifying themselves or grinding axes or glamorizing <laughs> themselves. And I thought, who's interested in my little life anyway? And, and uh, so I just determinedly said, these are stories. This is a kaleidoscope of stories. So when she phoned and said, how is the novel coming along? I said, well, actually, um, I'm going to give you another book first. And I made the mistake of saying it's more like a memoir. And she said, you are known for a certain kind of book. And I thought, oh, my God, so I stopped writing any book. And uh, anyway, then there was a big drama and I ended up uh, escaping to my lovely one-time editor, uh, who's now at Bloomsbury, And I I was saying to this woman, wouldn't you like me to show you some of the book? You know, you don't have to publish it. And whereas my chum at Bloomsbury was sort of greedily reading the chapters and stroking my ego and I thought, this is silly, I should be with her. So that's why I moved. But then after that book came out and the other one was just... I thought, now I know, now I can go back and finish that other book. And then just at that point, my husband had a stroke, so I put it back in a box. And so it actually ended up being in the box for about, like, eight years or so. And after my husband died, I just sort of slept for a year. And then I did fish it out of the box, and I finished it more or less because I thought I owed it to my editor, Alexandra Pringle, who'd been so wonderful. And uh, and then I started this other book, and it's just... Um, I have to pull myself together, that's all I can say. But I've developed just an art of falling asleep most of the time. You see, I used to write at four o'clock in the morning because it was a a device I discovered when my children were little because I wrote Jack through the night and then I would uh, sleep for about two hours, get up, wake up the children at school and walk around in a, a kind of daze and then fall asleep regularly every night reading bedtime stories. Until so one night, you know, my children would sort of, I'd start going. Blah, 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 blah. And my. And next day I said, Now, where'd we got up to? We were reading The Hobbit. And my aide, Joe said, That's all right, I finished it. <laughs> and I think in desperation, he taught himself to read. <laughs> So I thought, because what I would do, I was wake at four in the morning, squashed into a bunk bed, thinking, "Oh, oh you've done it again, Fawnsley." So after that, I thought, get up at four o'clock and write then. So I wrote from about four till eight thirty. Now I wake up four in the morning, and I read other people's books all the time. And these days, I read crime novels a lot, which I've never done before. But I now love crime novels.
1: Who are you reading at the moment? Are you in the
2: well, in the throes of the crime spree? You, you get to a point where you think, oh, there are no more Donna Leons for me to read. I've read all of Yodin Espo. Uh My son has pushed somebody called Peter May at me who has written a China series where his detective collaborates with a Chinese uh, um, detective. And they're great because they tell you so much about contemporary China. And he obviously knows all about China.
1: Have you ever been tempted to write something completely different under an alter ego? Have you
2: Well, uh um I I have, the, the book that I was writing in the in the back of the Saramago novel was the one that would flow easily and I really got no reason not to finish it. Though I do sweat blood over things, I rewrite every line about a hundred times, and I read it out loud, and I tape record it, and read it back, and I scratch it out. And do, do, you,
1: do you edit uh, as you go, <clears> or do you write a full draft and then go over it, and go over it, and go over it? I
2: used it? to edit, edit, edit like mad as as I went along, until I thought, well, this book has got you know fifty first chapters and nothing else, and now I try to push on. The other idea is a rather hard historical novel about about a sort of uh, religious uh, um, hallucinating person in the 16th century. And I think, would I be able to write a novel with, you know, footnotes and research and all of that? I don't know. And the the difficult thing about a historical novel is, you know, I adore dialogue and how do you get people to talk? I know Hilary Mantel does it so well and, and... in the past, people used to write the most terrible sort of cod, sort of <laughs> Merry England speak. Oh, and, no, um, and pretty. And, and, yes. And so that's a, quite a problem, isn't it, how, how you do that? yeah
1: you know, I'd not realised that because uh, I've got just this is a terrible, terrible thing to admit. I don't love the idea of reading an historical novel. I sort of feel a bit oof at the idea. And I think it's because I love the dialogue of a book so much. Mm. And I think that if that isn't right and you spend so much, you can't, you can't quite get into the rhythm of it, then I think that's what puts me off. And some people's dialogue is terrible, isn't it?
2: And other people are really quite nasty characters, like right? Evelyn more you'd forgive him anything for the mm. dialogue. Or oh, James Joyce. Yes. I used to produce that first chapter of Ulysses to people on writing courses. It's just the best, most accomplished sequence of dialogue ever.
1: I, I have never finished
2: Ulysses, but I'm going to look it's at that. It's not the sort of book you, I you, you don't get <laughs> driven to finish it, do you?
1: But maybe that's, I just need to sort of study I think the that's starch. the book
2: we all need to have read aloud to us.
1: Ah, oh, that's a really good idea.
2: Because once the BBC, Radio 3, read it all day, obviously a bit abridged, and it was completely compelling because, you know, it's so beautifully written mm-hmm. that it lends very well to being read aloud and all the voices are so beautifully done. But because it's so sort of endlessly wandering around, it doesn't have a sort of
1: page-turning mm. narrative pull, does it? You just want to read each sequence for... Do you find that if I read a... You know, if there's a book that I'm listening to, which I'm quite new to, I do like being able to sort of zone in and out a little bit <laughs> and sometimes oh, I'm not... This isn't grabbing me, and then you sort of you come back in. Or maybe maybe uh. I should... Maybe it's just because it I've got out no attention of your hand as you fall asleep in my case, all the time. Going onto the floor. <laughs> Happens a lot. Shall we? Um, how are we doing? Shall we go and look in the in the mm. study? Is that is that all right? Sure. Ah, oh, I'm having such a nice time. Sheena Mackay, who
2: wrote this lovely book, "The Orchard on Fire," about the two little girls growing up in the fifties, uh, who's a lovely writer, I think. Um, she, I met her, her once in Browns in Oxford because she had come up to interview Iris Murdoch, who was still oh. alive and and uh, and uh, you know unimpaired. She, she met me in Browns, and 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 she said uh, she was living in a small flat in South London. She said, oh, "I wish I had the space to be that much of a filth bucket." <laughs> <laughs> Describe this house with a mouldy cans and coffee mugs rolling about. Did you meet Iris Murdoch on that occasion? Do you know, I I never met Iris Murdoch, though, you know, I sometimes saw her at events or I was on the bus back from Heathrow thinking, oh, that's Iris Murdoch, I'm too shy to go and talk to her. And I was quite cross after she got dementia how John Bailey would cart her around and, and sort of push his own books And she would sit there not remembering that she'd ever written anything. And I thought, you've spent your whole life being a bit jealous of her, Mm -hmm. I think. That's what I read between the lines. Certain other people thought, oh, he's such a saint. He's taking such such good care of her. It made me very queasy.
1: Have you read... There's a Jilly Cooper... I'm a very, very big fan of Jilly Cooper. Um, And there's a book she yes, wrote, she... I think it's in The Man Who Made Husbands Jealous, and there's a character, Georgie, who's this sort of really successful pop star, and she's got this terrible, terrible husband called Guy, who's this Marsha, and everyone's like, oh, he's so good, and he puts up with so much, and Georgie's so wayward, and he really looks after her, and he's that kind of, you know, <laughs> resentful and credit-seeking. Yes, yes. I've just seen Under the Net by Iris. No, Is this no, right, the one? Yes. Is this the one that you read? Um, the one that I had?
2: probably got it from my parents, or it might have been one that I bought again. It's a of the period, isn't it? Oh, and there's uh, notes at
1: the back. I don't know. It's it? nothing I'm to do the with
2: story. the book, I don't <laughs> think. It's probably some talk I gave somewhere, but I don't know why it's stuck in this book. It's nothing to do with it. And actually, in one of my novels, this wonderful book that ends with uh, uh, this wonderful sort of peripatetic hero character, who's very sort of philosophical. Uh, he ends up sort of back where he started in the newsagent where the lady who runs a newsagent is always longing for her cat to get it together with a distinguished Persian cat and, <laughs> and, and uh, always gets together with some sort of uh, common or garden moggy and produces these kids. But, so Maggie's done it at last, I said, because uh, he's appeared with the show Dog, because the film set fell. I love the way she, she's very theatrical. And in this case, literally, the whole film set kind of fell fill around them. Uh, and Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Thing says, um, "'What puzzles me,' said Mrs. Tinkham, "'is why those two should be pure Siamese "'and the other one's quite different, "'instead of their all being half Dabby and half Siamese.'" And he says, "'I don't know why that is,' I said." It's just one of the wonders of the world. And I love the cadence of that sentence. And so I ended a book with that. I don't know why it is. I said, it's just one of the wonders of the world. And then in the acknowledgements, I said, uh, you know, I acknowledged various people. And then I said, and in conclusion, and I emphasize conclusion, my thanks to Iris Murdoch. And only one person actually picked this up and wrote me a letter from Australia saying, I've always loved your books, and then I was shocked to see that you'd just borrowed this line. <laughs> so I wrote back and said, oh, I'm so pleased you picked that up, but I did acknowledge it in the <laughs> conclusion.
1: <laughs> I think that's wonderful. It's a real oh, a treat it. for paying attention, isn't it? It's so lovely, because well, don't you find you
2: write a book, they're not, all going to pick up all your innuendos, mm. are they? But that doesn't matter so long as they're enjoying the book. <laughs> Do you and think... I find even people like you know, I said I had this uh, book where where uh, this kind of uh, effectively demon lover person mm. swept in, and the girl takes this man home, and her mother is very antipathetic. And when she leaves, she says, uh, "It says Alice was." resigned to the fact that her mother would never appreciate how gilded were the masts of his tall ship. And all sorts of people, you know, like editors, agents, people who read your book closely. I said, did you notice that he was the demon lover? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, Do you think... It's so nice that when somebody, somebody does. does that there? Um, but your readers have a profile or a commonality? I don't
2: know. Um, you know, I don't sort of think people have got to read your book or got to like it. And I'm a little bit eccentric. I'm a little bit left-wing. Uh, I uh, Some people say I'm too middle class. Certainly I felt misunderstood by the woman. You know, I, I, I have the girl from the posh boarding school who runs away from her family and she meets up with this... Beautiful, black, inner-city Londoner girl. Mm. And uh, she overhears a conversation where this girl is describing to her not-very-bright friend because they're at a school matinee. And the stupid one is sort of saying, well, I don't understand what the fuck this place blah, 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 blah. And the friend... Partly it was a tribute to the girls I taught in the East End of London. And I'd never heard the F word said out loud. And these children... Would just punctuate every sentence with, you know, with this monosyllabic word, and I thought it gave their speech such a sort of dynamism, and so I wrote this sequence with this wonderful black girl who ends up being picked out from the 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 comp in Seven Sisters to go to Cambridge. Is
1: this juggling?
2: <sighs> Is it juggling? Probably. And and she just <laughs> takes one look at the place and she says, fucking hell, I'm not coming here. Yeah, the old place looks like churches. And she goes off to work in a cake shop. The but then later on she's lured back and she ends up being a big star and getting a fellowship and doing a thesis on the Black Madonna in Provence and so on. But this woman I was on the platform with, who I thought was much more exclusively bourgeois than me, with all her kids in private schools, accused me of patronising the working class. And I thought, But I love Dulcie. I thought I was being, if anything, rather romantic about her, you know, and her stunning achievements and her beauty and she was so articulate and clever. I suppose Yeah, quite clearly not everyone is going to like your books. And once when I was at the Edinburgh Festival, a woman who I later discovered was Anne Fine, who's great, actually, and, you know, a, quite a forceful character. She afterwards told this wonderful story that her parents had got the two little girls, she and her sister, and they just got their nice little, little pet terrace house and, and you know, they were sort of managing nicely. And then they were tempted to think, wouldn't it be nice to try for a boy? And what they got instead was female triplets. And so that Anne is one of the five <laughs> girls. And she said they were like the fines girls. You know, they marched through school in a body of five girls. And uh, she's um, she's much bolder than I am. And she stood up at this uh, talk I was giving and she said, I'll tell you why the women in your novel are all such shrinking violets. And that's because you live in Oxford, where all, where all the men are such opinionated <laughs> bastards. <that are." laughs> I think she'd been married to it in Oxford. And uh, I thought, no, I don't think that's true. I think it starts much earlier. You know, I had a very dominant father and a rather shrinking violet mother. But I took that to heart and I thought, okay, my next heroine is going to be a... Barky girl, who's not going to lie down and be compliant, and so I think I had Anne Fine to be grateful for that. I just I wrote about a edgy girl called Christina, who was the one who ran away from home and hooked up with the black girl. So I, I thought, yes, yeah, she did make me think that maybe, too much uh, the victim of my time, you know.
1: But I think you know you don't have to be one thing or the other, and I think <laughs> what's interesting now is there's a real moment where we 're talking a lot about you know it's very important to have strong women and strong female mm. characters naturally, you know I think it's really hard to live in this world even now and be a woman and not be a shrinking violet sometimes because you 're always yes. being talked over and not listened to and i I love that it 's about people who feel weak and who feel strong and, and... anyway
2: you're you're not writing propaganda when you 're mm. writing a novel you 're writing about people who are what they are. Mm you're not necessarily agreeing with them mm. or, you know, taking on their ideologies or their attitudes. Yeah. That's just the way they are. They- when somebody stood up at an audience, you know, after Jonathan Goldman had, I thought, just philandered a bit, not seriously, mm. having his little flutter with the, the the media don, and this man in the audience stood up and said, "Um, why did you have to make Jonathan Goldman Jewish? Oh, my and God. I, I thought, well, you know, A, he wasn't sort of really Jewish because his mother wasn't Jewish, but I appreciate there was an element of sort of cultural Judaism. I thought, well, I didn't make him Jewish. You know, that's just how he was. was he? Long before oh. he landed with the media, Don. And so I tried to have this debate with him, and I thought it was going on too long and getting boring for the audience, but he kept coming busy, like...
1: Was he upset because of the way he thought you'd portrayed Jewish people? Or was he upset because he didn't want to read about a Jewish person?
2: I really like Jonathan Goldman. I find him a very attractive person. And I thought I'd been quite unkind to him in that not not everyone who has a minor extramarital affair ends up with a dead girl on his conscience. Mm. But eventually I thought what he's saying, you know, I thought... Are you saying that a person who is Jewish or sort of Jewish (laughs) um, Jewish. is absolutely never going to sin in thought, word or deed? Mm. Or, you know, are you supposed to be promoting certain kinds of people in this sort of goody-goody way? So, But people in your novels are just the way they are, aren't they? They're going to be fallible. They're going to be interesting or boring or...
1: And I dare say they, they do things that you might not have expected them exactly. to do before you sat down. Yes, yes. That's what's so interesting. And In a total departure, but I've just seen this really lovely-looking book on your desk, Kites to Make and Fly. It's an old <laughs> uh, practical puffin. This looks great. You know,
2: that was a book that I had with my children, and we went to Cornwall and we used it, and we made the most successful kites. They just flew over the cliffs and then... My Joe, who has the three-year-old daughter, said, Mum, where's that kite book? I want to make kites for Alexandra, and we could not could not find it. So thanks to the wonderful internet, I found, within half a minute, I found it again and bought it again, and Joe has been making kites for the granddaughter. But these kites really work. It's a Puffin book, if you should ever want to make kites... <laughs>
0: Well, we well, now I, case, I do, so, so well,
1: a lot of wind on the beach. Such... I love these illustrations. You've got a big mm. um, a kite that's been decorated to look like a bat and two bats flying alongside. So yes. I, mean, I tell you, yes. it's not Uncle Charlie.
2: Well, on our last day on this Cornish holiday, when the children were probably something like uh, six, uh, five and nine, I think, my daughter Anna's kite got stuck in a tree and we we, we just had to catch our train and we had luggage... And it was so sad she'd stuck silver foil to the kite. It was just made out of brown wrapping paper. And as we rounded this windy coastline on a sunny day, we could see the silver foil glinting on her kite up in this tall tree. But this uh, is the most fantastic book, this kite. It's a puffin book. It's, I never I think read lot... Nancy Mitford until I was sort of middle-aged. It's funny because lots of people said... My first novel was influenced by Nancy Mitford, so that's why I went off and read her. I thought, let me see what this person's like. is supposed to have influenced me. And she is that, that is it called The Pursuit of Love? Mm. That's awesome. the best one, and it's really funny, about the eccentric family. Yes. It starts with the dad, with the description of the bloodied and trenchant <laughs> <tool> over the <laughs> fireplace.
1: hair stuck in it. <laughs> yes. Because I was thinking about something I think about a lot. I think when you're talking about kind of, you know, writing and the energy it takes up and sort of how it feels about it. There's um, when Linda shacks up with Christian hmm. and she sort of doesn't have staff for the first time in her life. And she she's talk- con- talks about how, you know, the things of the i think you know the vacuum queen is running away from her and how weird it is that she, you know when they went hunting they were made to rest after afterwards and, and you're, you know you <laughs> do housework and you're just supposed to carry on as yes. normal and putting your face in the oven <laughs> yes. and all that. yes <laughs> and, and there's if- no wonder people
2: don't just leave their heads near out of sheer misery <laughs> and and uh and she takes a turn working in the communist bookshop mm. the comrades bookshop yes. And uh, she always sells more books than anybody else.
1: And Potsy she's so
2: good at chatting. She surprised
1: says, "Why it like she sort of sells things like Diary of a Nobody and things aren't especially <laughs> communists?" And I loved it when she she's uh,
2: with uh, is he called Crispin Christopher the the oh the the Christian
1: the communist Christian
2: yes she she's in uh, the south of France uh, um, documenting the the refugees from the Spanish mm. Civil War. And, uh, you know, they're being put on boat. She's congratulated because the the, the comrades are so approve of the, the way she's allotted the cabins oh. because they say, you know, all the um, sort of grander, more bourgeois people have been battened and the labourers have got all the best cabins and um, how on earth has she managed to um, work the system so well? And she says, oh, well, ah... Uh, You see, when I was a child, I had such a sweet little Labrador. So whenever I saw the word Labrador on somebody's form, well, I gave them a very
1: nice... (laughs) (laughs) Huge thanks to Barbara. Please binge on her back catalogue. Brother of the More Famous Jack, Noah's Ark, Temples of Delight, Juggling, The Travelling Horn Player, Frankie and Stanky, and Sex and Stravinsky. They're all published by Bloomsbury. Also, thank you so much to Bloomsbury for their support with this. If you've already read those books, reread them with me. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me on our bookshelf odyssey. You can find me on Twitter at notrollergirl, on Instagram at B. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time. For now, I leave you with Caroline Bingley on Elizabeth Bennet with a hat tip to Jane Austen. She is a great reader and has no pleasure in anything else.